Good morning, everyone. We continue our, uh, our sermon series and the Sermon on the Mount that we've been calling the King's Speech because, of course, King Jesus delivered this, this message for us to tell us about his kingdom that he was bringing in and what life in his kingdom was going to look like. And today we're kind of closing out the first section of, of that speech. We've had a lengthy section now where, uh, where Jesus has been talking about the Old Testament law. And he's been saying, well, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And that's kind of been the structure. And we've got a couple more of those to go today. Just by way of introduction, I wonder if any of you have had this experience. It's pretty common in this community being a college campus, especially around uh, the beginning of the school year or even more so around graduation. Uh, anything that brings students' extended family onto campus, right? Graduation in particular. You'll, you'll see some people and you'll, you'll know that these students belong with this mother or this father because of the strong family resemblance, right? You can't help but go, oh yeah, you're, you're so-and-so's son or you're so-and-so's daughter. Especially even those of you that have a long history on this campus, right? Where maybe you taught their parents or Ken Ginter's not here, but their grandparents, perhaps. Uh, Ken's, he's just had a remarkable run. Um, but it, anyhow, people, people recognize when, when there's that resemblance, right? And you can't help but remark on it and say, oh, you're so-and-so's kid. It could be interesting looking in family archives and seeing these kind of resemblances as well, sometimes spanning many generations. Not that long ago, I was pursuing one of my kind of unusual, perhaps, topics of interest, the First World War, and a little bit of family history there. And I ran across this really interesting family resemblance. Now, as far as I know, I don't actually have any direct ancestors that served in the First World War. Uh, one of my great-grandfathers was called up once we had conscription in Canada, right near the end of the war. But because he was a farmer and he ran a wood-cutting business in the winter, he didn't actually have to, to serve overseas because those were considered essential home-front duties and the war was almost over by that point anyhow. But we do have a couple of cousins from that generation who served, at least uh, two um, and the, William and Hugh Knowles were killed side by side at Vimy Ridge when their machine gun post took a direct hit from a German shell. They were advancing up Hill 145, if that means anything to you. But as I read their service records, I got this, this eerie kind of feeling when I looked at, at particularly Hugh's picture. It just looked a little bit too familiar. Now perhaps it's just the perspective of the pose this particular photo here. It's hard to say, but once I saw this resemblance, I couldn't really unsee it, if you know what I mean. So the man there on the left, that's Hugh Knowles, and uh, the man on the right is my late brother Matthew. And uh, the resemblance was just a little bit too uncanny for me. And of course, I think the fact that they both died about the same age in their 20s under kind of tragic circumstances, it just kind of solidified that, that family resemblance a little bit eerie, but you can't help seeing it. The point I'm trying to make here is that a strong family resemblance, it makes an impression on us, and you can't help but remark on it and say, you must be so-and-so's son, you must be so-and-so's daughter. This has kind of come up already in the Sermon on the Mount, right? When Jesus says, let your light so shine before others that they'll see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It's kind of implicit there, but today Jesus brings that out in explicit fashion. He really emphasizes it. And so we'll look at uh, Matthew chapter 5, and we'll start at verse 38. 
I invite the congregation to stand, as kind of as our custom, as you're able to do so, for the reading of God's word for our, for our sermon text today. Matthew 5, verse 38, to the end of the chapter. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's word. Let me have a seat. Now we've, we've nodded politely, if, if perhaps somewhat uncomfortably, as Jesus has talked about anger and lust and lying and so forth. But here Jesus just kind of goes full on outside the lines. We're just left going, what are you talking about, Jesus? Now does this apply? You mean to tell me this applies if our country is being invaded? What if you live with an abusive spouse? And doesn't just giving people money, doesn't that just enable them to continue in patterns of a sinful and, and poor lifestyle choices? These are all important questions. And it's important that we understand what Jesus is and is not talking about in this passage. When we come to the Bible, we're, we're always going to run the risk of reading it incorrectly. I suppose we'll never get it 100% right but we can at least avoid some of the major errors, I, th- I hope. One of the big mistakes that we can make when faced with a passage like this is basically just to explain it away, right? And you've probably heard this done, right? Make a few passing references to Greco-Roman rhetoric, make a few more to the Hebraic tendency toward hyperbole, uh, you know, first century cultural norms, blah, 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 and presto, God just wants you to be happy and have a nice life. We've all heard people basically do that. Just explain anything that's difficult or makes us uncomfortable. We just explain that away. Wouldn't want to offend anyone. The opposite mistake, and this is particularly unfortunate when we do this because Jesus' whole point in the Sermon on the Mount is to try to move his hearers away from legalism. But when we don't know what else to do with the passage, we tend to legalize it. And just, well, and I guess we just have to rigidly follow these rules. And if they're confusing, we'll make more rules to help us follow the rules better. We all know how that goes, right? Shame and despair if we can't live up to our own expectations and pride when we actually manage to do so. So let's dig into this passage, difficult as it is. You've heard it said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now this like-for-like principle is stated in a number of places in the Old Testament law. Leviticus 24, 17 and following lays it out pretty clearly. 
Here's verses 19 and 20 in that passage. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given, a person shall be given to him. Now, it's popular in our so-called enlightened culture to sort of look at that eye-for-eye principle and be like, well, that's, that's brutal and terrible, right? And you've maybe heard people say things like, well, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that just leaves everyone toothless and blind. Perhaps so, but many scholars have pointed out that at least one very likely option here is that the Old Testament and other ancient Near Eastern sources were actually trying to limit the punishments that could be given out to some extent, right? That the punishment should fit the crime. No more and no less, like for like. And when you look at some of the brutality, even in law codes in ancient history, let alone just what people would do to one another, eye for eye doesn't actually sound so bad, right? Because that way, if I run over your dog, you can't come and burn my house down. Or if you steal a loaf of bread, you don't get 19 years hard labor, theater nerds did you catch that joke okay that was terrible Anyhow, Jean Valjean you know goes to prison for 19 years for stealing that loaf of bread and that wasn't even in biblical times that was not that long ago okay moving on so what's Jesus problem with an eye for an eye it actually doesn't sound so bad when you consider the kind of tendencies toward wrath and revenge limits that somewhat would he rather that we just kind of do whatever well no that's anarchy And he says not to resist the evil man. So would you rather that evil people just be permitted to go around being violent and mean? Well, that's the challenge, isn't it? Whatever we do with this passage, we have to uphold Jesus' imperative to love those, even those who hate us and treat us badly, uphold that, but also uphold the fundamental idea of God being a God of justice, because that's part of his very nature. So what's going on here? Well, it seems that like, like many things, the religious teachers of Jesus' day had twisted this law. Now remember how we've talked about the Pharisees in particular. They like to make rules about how to keep the rules. They just added more and more rules on top of the rules to try to instruct everyone in the, every little detail they could think of. But here's the irony. When you multiply the rules, you often don't create greater clarity about how to keep the rules. You know what you create? You create loopholes. And then that allows people to keep the the letter of the law without keeping the spirit of the law. Or it allows people to do the minimum required to get by and then to be able to say, oh, I'm not breaking any rules here. First of all, it seems like the Pharisees had neglected the idea that an eye for an eye was more of a limit of punishment and treated it rather like a universal principle, almost like a minimum punishment than a maximum one. And once you start doing that, you remove any possibility for grace and forgiveness. It's just, okay, well, here's what happened. Here's the punishment, just the hammer of the law. Secondly, it also seems that this passage and similar ones were being used as an excuse for basically vigilante justice. Now, some of us, depending on our political leanings, might think that just letting people sort out their own issues wouldn't be such a bad idea. And I confess, there have been things in the news where I think, you know what, a few guys with cut-off hockey sticks out in the back alley might not be such a bad idea for some of the things going on in our world. The truth is, though, most of us, we are just too close personally and too invested personally in the wrongs that have been dealt to us 
to be equal and fair arbiters of justice, right? We're too invested in our own hurts to dispense justice fairly. What we tend towards doing is revenge. And so while an eye for an eye is better than many alternatives when it comes to systems of justice, it's kind of a terrible way to live at a personal level because it just leads to revenge. So in other words, we shouldn't be taking matters into our own hands. We should settle things by appropriate means. Sometimes that might mean an established legal system, and sometimes that means leaving it up to God's ultimate justice. But how does this play out in practice? Does this mean that it's never appropriate to seek redress for wrongs suffered? Well, I don't think so, or at least I don't think we should take these and make a law out of them. Jesus' point here is to get people away from just a rule-keeping mentality and a legalistic mindset. I think his point is not to give us better and more rules to follow, but to challenge the fundamental assumptions of our heart. So let's look at some of the examples. If, If someone slaps you on the right cheek. Much has been made about the fact that uh, the slap on the right cheek by a right-handed person, if you see what's going on here, would be with the back of the right hand, and thus maybe is more of an insult than an injury. Possibly, but the Greek word can just mean to hit in general, and the parallel passage in Luke doesn't mention being hit on the right side of the face. It just mentions being hit in the face. Matthew just seems to have a preference for the right, right? Remember the thing about gouging out your right eye or cutting off your right hand that was so vividly illustrated for us by Pastor Blaine? So the preference for the right side seems to be just sort of a stylistic thing in Matthew. Be that as it may, what is this talking about? Does it mean that it's never right to resist? Doesn't that just make Christians doormats? Doesn't that just confirm mean people in their violent ways if you just roll over and take it? And they're like, great, I beat this guy up. I'm just going to... Carry on beating the next guy up. Haven't we all known situations where standing up to the bully in the schoolyard was the thing to do? Because once he was challenged, it just proved that he was deep down a coward? We've all had that happen. What do we do? Let's look at the next example. That's what we'll do. If someone sues you and takes away your tunic, you know, your, your shirt, if you will, let him have your cloak, let him have your jacket as well. The Old Testament law forbade a creditor from taking someone's outer cloak as a piece of collateral because for a poor man, that was all he had to sleep in and taking it away from him was too much of an indignity. So the law said, you can't do that. But Jesus said, if someone wants it, give it to him. What does that mean, right? That it's never proper to seek legal options as a means to justice? That you should let people bring false accusations against you and just not defend yourself? Again, doesn't that just embolden the mean and bad people in a society to take advantage of others if they know they'll get away with it? Let's move on to the next example. Keep these questions in your mind. If someone forces you to go with him one mile, now it was common practice in in the society in which Jesus lived that a Roman officer could requisition a a private individual's services, either of them or their animals or their vehicles, to transport their equipment or them a distance up to one mile. They could commandeer your services. And this is where we get that phrase, right? Going the extra mile. In other words, Jesus says, don't just put up with this minor inconvenience, put up with a bigger one and do it willingly. But again, doesn't this just allow a corrupt and unjust state? Now we're at the state level. Doesn't that just allow them to continue in these forms of systemic injustice? 
Shouldn't we do something about that? Let's look at the next example. It's kind of just tacked on. It's not an if-then like the first three, but just an imperative. Give to anybody who would beg or borrow from you. Beggars were a reality in Jesus' day, just like they are in our own. Maybe we don't run into that a whole lot in our little neck of the woods, but go to Toronto or Vancouver or any other large city, and you have to make up your mind. What are you going to do to all the people that are begging on the sidewalk? Are you going to give them money or are you not, right? And we might come away with more answers and questions. Should I give this person money if they're just going to spend it on drugs or cigarettes or, or maybe even more personally, somebody tells you they need money for food, but you know they're probably going to spend it on vices. Should, should you give them the money or not? Doesn't that just teach them irresponsibility? Well, I'm out of examples to talk about in this first portion of our passage for the day, but let's move on to the next one. These really could have been separate sermons, and if you go on you know, your, your favorite preacher or church's website, you'll often see these two small passages as actual separate sermons, but I kind of like that we've kept them together because I think the second passage actually helps illumine the first passage in some pretty important ways. So we'll move on to 43 to 48. I think it's really important for understanding this passage, as well as all the passages that go, you've heard it said, but I say to you. So hold those questions about how we obey what Jesus has taught us, because I think they're important, but let's continue listening to our Lord. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemies. Now, if you've noticed, Jesus' comments in these, you've heard it said, but I say to you, sections have moved in a specific direction. He started by discussing laws that come from the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. And then he moved on to some other laws that weren't part of the Ten Commandments, about keeping oaths, and uh, now about, about eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And here he kind of even takes one step further. All those previous ones actually came from Scripture. This one kind of only half does, sort of. The part about loving your neighbor certainly is a central theme of the Old Testament law affirmed in Leviticus 19. The idea of loving your neighbor was such an essential piece of the law that Jesus affirmed it as one of the primary two commandments of the whole law. In just a few chapters, Matthew chapter 19, he says, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, etc. We all know this, and love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two depend all the law and the prophets. But what's with the second part? Does the Old Testament law ever say, hate your enemies? Well, not explicitly, but, well, it seems that this second part is kind of just a general summary of the interpretation current in Jesus' day. Throughout the Old Testament, neighbors were more or less understood to be your fellow Israelites. And for chapter after chapter of the law and the prophets and the writings, Israel was exhorted Do not be like the pagans around you, right? Don't adopt their practices. Don't worship their gods. Don't intermarry with them. Don't run your country the way they do. Remember, remember, you were slaves in Egypt. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. Don't be like them. A thousand years of that kind of tends to produce a pretty strong us versus them mentality. To say nothing of currently being under the thumb and might of imperial Rome. But I say to you, love your enemies. Right? Don't just love your neighbors. 
Love everyone. Love the stranger. Love your enemies. Or to put it another way, if you like, love your neighbor. Everyone is your neighbor. Why? Well, there's nothing wrong with loving people that are already part of your group. It's just not that praiseworthy. And Jesus gets to that, right? He says, you know, the mafia, to use a modern-day example, is really good at this. Biker gangs are really good at this. That's the whole point of how their systems work. They create a community based on either actual or implicit family uh, sort of lines, you know, right? That's how the mafia works. That's typically how gangs work. You create this little structure of people that are fiercely loyal to one another. In many cases, that's why people join criminal organizations, right? That's why young men often get drawn into gangs is because the gang provides them with this father figure and a place to belong. And they're fiercely loyal to one another. And and after a manner, they care about one another and protect each other. That's Jesus' whole point. You're not really doing anything that notable if you're just caring about and taking care of the people that are in your own little circle. Pagans do that and tax collectors do that. Now, you might not be breaking any kneecaps if you're just loving the people in your own little circle, but you're not breaking out of that circle either. So why does Jesus say to live this way, to even love your enemies? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now here's where I want to spend the bulk of the time that remains to us. We've already spent a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been here since Easter. And we've got a lot more to go. We're only done one chapter. But this is kind of the climax of part one, right? If this was a trilogy of movies, we'd be rolling the credits right about now on the first film. You know, play, play the emotional music and roll credits. But before we proceed any further, we need to be clear on one thing. Living this way of, of radical love, even for enemies, is not how you become a child of God. Rather, you live this way because you've already become a child of God. Some people are always going to say, oh, you Christians, you're just using words, that's just sophistry, that's just fancy words to to say something that doesn't really mean anything. Makes a distinction where there isn't one, but I actually think there is a distinction here. I actually think it's a pretty huge distinction. The trouble is that the distinction exists at the level of the heart, and that can be hard to see sometimes. But that's Jesus' whole point. As I said earlier, he's not just giving us a better or or a harder law to follow. In every case, he points us to the Old Testament law. He shows us where outward obedience to the letter of the law will lead us astray. And he points us to the heart obedience to the spirit of the law that is what his kingdom is all about. He points out our rule-keeping hearts that always want to know what's the minimum we can do, and then he points us toward a kingdom heart that doesn't know any limits. So I would explain verse 45 in the sense not of that you could become sons of your Father in heaven, but that you could be seen to be sons of your Father who is in heaven, similar to 5.9 and 5.16. We're not talking about achievement, but about imitation or resemblance. God shows his love for all, good and bad alike, by, right, by sending rain on those who might seem to deserve it and for those who don't. That's pretty generous of him. Jesus is calling us to act in that same generous spirit towards those that love us and those that do not. 
More than that, however, God demonstrates his love for us in what? You learned this in Sunday school. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's beyond just generous. But could we act in that same sort of self-giving spirit? Might we live in such a way that people would say, there, there goes one of God's kids. Now some of us might be getting a little bit concerned. Those of us with kind of strong reformed or evangelical backgrounds, we've frequently been warned off talk about imitating Jesus, and, or by extension, imitating God the Father. Kind of, it's partly because classic liberal theology really majored on Jesus, the great moral teacher and ethicist, usually to the exclusion of Jesus, the sacrificial savior for sins. So evangelicalism rightly rejected that approach to Jesus, but it kind of has become, a, in some quarters anyhow, a classic baby in bathwater thing. Jesus was and is more than a great moral teacher, but he's certainly not less. I think that's why we so often tend to go to Paul's letters when we want to talk about the gospel rather than, you know, to the gospels. We don't always know what to do with passages like the Sermon on the Mount. We have a strong tendency, as I said earlier, towards legalizing them and just being like, okay, well, we've got to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, do all this right or else, or we just kind of end up confused, going, I really don't know what to do with this. So let's look again at some of those examples Jesus commanded in that earlier passage. How might we look at them from a Jesus-focused perspective. If somebody hits you in the face, don't retaliate. Hmm, who did that? Jesus, right? At his trial, Jesus was struck in the face by the, the, at the trial before the, the Jewish Sanhedrin. At his trial before Pontius Pilate, he was cruelly mocked and struck in the face and he didn't retaliate, even as we heard in our earlier scripture reading. Hmm, that's, that's kind of interesting. If somebody would, would sue you and take away your garments, that, that kind of also sounds familiar, doesn't it? If you look at Jesus' passion and death. Remember how the, the Roman soldiers took away his garments when they nailed him up to the cross and threw dice and gambled to see who would get his cloak as he was dying there. Someone would compel you to go one mile with him. Can we think, oh yeah, the Roman soldiers, they forced Jesus to carry his own cross to the place of execution and then they compelled Simon of Cyrene to carry it the rest of the way. In other words, Jesus is calling his disciples to live the same kind of life that he himself lived. A life of sacrificial giving for others. A life that shares a striking family resemblance to his own. He's not calling us to live anything but what he himself was willing to live. And love is the way. The dominant characteristic of the kind of life Jesus lived was love. Now if you saw the royal wedding, you might have caught Reverend Michael Curry's message when he said somewhat humorously, as, as was his way, Jesus didn't die on a cross in order to get awarded an honorary doctorate, but because of love. 
Whatever else you might think of the man, whatever else you might think of his message, that was spot on. So often we come to the scriptures and we come to Jesus looking for a list of ways to act. Okay, just tell me, give me some life hacks. If I just follow these things, I'll get my life in order. Or, or give me some more rules to follow. I don't think I'm following enough. We want some things to do or some steps to obey, but Jesus doesn't give us that. He gives us himself. The whole point of this series of juxtapositions between you've heard it said, but I say to you, has been to get his hearers away from that letter of the law, rule-keeping mentality. Instead, he wants his hearers and us to look at the intentions of our hearts more than the outward actions. And for Jesus, the basic orientation and intention of the heart always has to be love. Love for God and love for others. All right, so a rule-keeping heart, we've been kind of looking back and forth at this in our, in our series of messages. A rule-keeping heart asks, how can I improve my own lot, even if that means that others are going to suffer? Now, the religious rule-keeping heart might add, how can I improve my own lot while staying within the bounds of the law, even if that means that other people have to suffer? But it does so all the same. Contrast that with a kingdom heart. It asks the opposite. How can I improve the lot of others even if that means that I myself might have to suffer? That's a radical flip on its head of how we tend to want to live. And the kingdom understanding, suffering isn't exactly valuable in and of itself. Suffering is valuable to the extent that it's redemptive. Suffering is value in that it results in some good. And of course the primary example is Jesus' own example. But what do we do about these situations that Jesus mentioned? What do we do when we face similar things that are not exactly the same but kind of? Or what do we do when we face situations that Jesus didn't talk about? Well, our tendency is to try to make rules to cover those, and then we'll make rules about the rules, but that's to miss the point. No, we should examine our hearts and see where we're prone to react in self-interest and then look for ways we can love instead and then do those things. Right? Sometimes there's something that's wrong, a situation. And there are scenarios where it would be wrong to speak up against that because we'd be doing so just out of self-interest or, or a desire for revenge. And we should let it go. There are other situations where, where there's something wrong going on and we should speak up because to keep silent, we'd be doing it out of fear. You see what happens here? The important thing to look at is, are we responding out of love or some other motivation? In any situation, we need to determine what is the truly loving course of action and follow it. And frequently, the truly loving course of action goes pretty counter to what we just naturally want to do if we follow our own natural human desires. I'm not going to stand up here and pretend that the call to love even your enemies isn't incredibly hard. But the way of love is really, at the end of the day, all the church has to offer to the world. How else do we hope to see lives transformed? How else do we hope to see those who oppose Jesus and his gospel and hate him and what he stands for? How do we hope to see them transformed and converted? How else do we hope to see the day when we'll beat our swords into plowshares? How will we accomplish any of this if all we do is just seek to avoid suffering 
at all costs and look out for our own interests. Here's a secret. Well, it's not really a secret. Jesus knew it. A lot of wise people throughout the ages have known it. If you willingly and with your eyes open accept suffering, it's still painful, but at least it prevents you from being a victim. Right? Then that's when suffering has a hope of actually being redemptive instead of just being destructive. We conclude here with something that Jesus said that's it's been pretty controversial throughout the ages. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And we don't have time to get into all the different schools of thought surrounding that statement, right? We can get into the Lutheran and the Wesleyan and the, you can research that on your own time if you want. There are a lot of different schools of thought as to what we do with this because it's a hard saying. Some people, and rightly so, I think, are concerned about legalism, about pride, right? About the kind of person that says, oh, I'm above all that. I, I'm, I am above sin. I haven't sinned in 15 years. Well, maybe you did just now by saying that. I don't know. Because you're probably lying. Um, but I, you, we all understand why people have such a hard time with this saying of Jesus. But what would you have preferred, he said? Be mediocre as the average guy on the street is mediocre? Be a little bit less than terrible or a little bit better than terrible? Be average so as not to offend anyone? Like, what would you have preferred, he said? I mean, the danger of aiming high is that we won't get there, but the danger in aiming low is that we'll achieve it and be satisfied with that. I think a lot of us find the statement just too lofty or daunting, and as a result, we just, you know, we'd prefer to settle for a few basic rules not killing people, not sleeping around. That's the very attitude that Jesus is warning against. That's what he spent the last 20-some verses talking about. You've heard it said, don't kill people, but I say to you, if you're angry, etc., etc. Jesus actually means for us to change and to change deeply, not just our actions, but our very hearts. So what are we going to do? Right? We see this call. To be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. To love your enemies as, as our Father in heaven has done. What are we going to do? What if we see that high call and we go, I, I cannot do that. Right? What if we see the call to live in free obedience to Christ rather than live in rigid obedience to a written code and we are scared stiff of such an adventure, right? Because it means the unknown. It means we don't have a written down solution that we just look up and follow the instruction every time. What if we do, what if, what do we do if the call to perfection just sounds way too overwhelming? Well, number one, don't be so afraid of being a bad Christian that you become a legalist. The danger is always going to be there. And I think there's, there's no zeal like the new convert zeal, right? We've all known these people. Kind of floated along in mediocrity. And then one day decided to get serious about whatever. It doesn't have to be their faith. It can be anything. Their health, their education, whatever. And those are usually the people. You become all zealous. You become usually rigid and dogmatic. You start to look down on other people that aren't taking things as seriously as you feel you are. You start to make a big deal out of all the non-essentials of the faith. You start to get prideful. 
We've all known that person, have we not? Some of us have been that person too. Don't be that person. The flip side is also true. Don't be so afraid of being a legalist that you become a bad Christian. The desire not to be that person, that legalistic, self-righteous person, can prevent us from doing anything. We're so afraid of, well, I wouldn't want to be a legalist. I wouldn't want to be trusting in works righteousness. We'll just wait. We'll just sit here. We've got a whole lifetime. I'll just wait until God zaps me on the head with some kind of supernatural willpower to overcome my besetting sins and my lack of motivation. Maybe we've known that person too, that you just throw up your hands and go like, you could be doing a lot for the kingdom and a lot for your faith. Maybe we've been that person too at some points in our life. Don't be that person either. Number three, you can't do it all today. That's why I'm so thankful that we have the Gospels because we see the disciples struggling to figure out how to follow Jesus. Some people even read the book of Acts and see it as this huge, you know, triumphant march of the church and the Gospel into the unknown. When you really look at it, they were just figuring stuff out as they went. They, you know, they had all kinds of problems they had to overcome. I mean, read, the, read Paul's letters too. Some of the churches were doing well, but man, some of them, the Galatians, the Corinthians, they were working it out. They were struggling, trying to figure out how they're going to follow Jesus in their society. They didn't get it all at one moment at the snap of a finger. and We won't either. If you try to get it all in one moment, you're going to burn yourself out. You'll burn your family out. You'll either have some success and become all prideful, or you'll You'll fail after probably by the end of the day and feel worse. Maybe you've known that person too. Maybe you've been that person. So don't be that person either. Number four, remember, success or failure doesn't make you more or less saved or more or less loved by God. And just start following somewhere after Jesus. What if instead of feeling defeated that you're not going to be perfect tomorrow, You just made up your mind to follow as much as you can today, right? Instead of feeling defeated that perfection was just, oh, that's an unrealistic standard, I can't keep that. You made up your mind to trust the Lord to give you grace and strength to follow him just one more step closely today than you did yesterday and one more step closely tomorrow than you did today and keep doing that. What is it in your life, right? Some of us, we... we, we get so defeated because we see, oh, I, th- the size of this is so big of where I need to get to and what I need to overcome that it paralyzes us and prevents us from doing something that we could do right now. And we, it becomes an excuse more than anything else. But what is it in your life? What is something that you could follow Jesus in more closely even today? Just some, even a small thing, Right? Jesus has led us through a number of areas in chapter 5. Anger, lust, speech, loving others. I believe that if we're honest in our reading, in our hearing of this passage, and we're open to his leading, we'll see areas where he's calling us to a greater obedience. Right? Even if that means we have to break it down into some smaller steps to do so. 
What's one action? Just one action. Forget about, oh, I got to be perfect by tomorrow or today and just say, what's one action where you could step out and follow Jesus? Not because of guilt, not because of pride, not because of this rule-keeping mindset that says, I've got to achieve this standard, usually the minimum standard, but because you're motivated by love, because you're motivated by wanting to follow Jesus, because you're motivated by what he's already done for you. What's one area where people might see that family resemblance just a little bit more closely, right, as you keep living out your life? See that family resemblance a little bit more clearly and that maybe people, when they see you, would say, ah, there goes one of God's kids. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It's, it, the word today it was not a real easy word. It leaves us with a lot of questions about how we, how we live out this call to love enemies, how we live out this call to put others before ourselves, to not retaliate, to not take revenge, to not use violence. And there are all kinds of, of questions that this leaves us with, But we're not going to solve these questions, Lord, by just trying to make more rules on top of the rules and and create a a written code that we can just look up Uh, because the number of situations we face in our lives are just endless. We can't create a rule for each one. And Lord, we're thankful that you don't want us to. But that means we, we have to live in faith and trust and obedience in you. And Lord, we confess that that can be hard sometimes. Sometimes we would prefer to just have some basic rules that we can follow. But you call us to more than that, Lord. You call us to sacrificial love. Because that's, that's who you are. That's your character. I pray, Lord, that whatever else we may see in this passage and beyond all the questions we may have, that we would see that call to live as our Savior Jesus lived, to live a life that's characterized by self-giving love, a love that doesn't seek our own interest even to the expense of others, but a love that seeks the good of others even if that means that we may have to suffer for it because, Lord, that's, that's you. That's how you lived And may we follow that. And may, Lord, we not be scared by the call to be perfect. That's a big call, Lord. We're not going to get there by the end of today or tomorrow or next week. But, Lord, we know that that's that's your ultimate ultimate plan for us. And even as the Apostle Paul said, not that I've already obtained this, but I keep pressing on. May that be true of each one of us. May we all find areas, even today, where we can keep pressing on to know you more, to follow you more closely, to take one more step of obedience, to give over a little bit more of our lives to that kind of love that you call us to. Not out of guilt or out of shame, or out of pride, or out of this rule-keeping heart that so easily characterizes us, but rather out of self-giving grace and love 
that characterizes you and comes through your spirit at work in our hearts. And we pray that he may be. And we pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.